Section 50 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 13, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 50. A Little Scotch Pioneer in Wisconsin. The First Half of the Nineteenth Century. By John Muir. The thought of striking out into the wilderness to make a home has certain fascination, but whoever attempts it must look forward to years of hard labor before he can see much fruit of his toil. The following account of the first years on a new farm has been chosen as presenting a typical picture of pioneer life in its struggle to transform forests and prairies into the fertile farms that have been the chief source of the nation's wealth. The Editor I was put to the plough at the age of twelve, when my hand first reached but little above the handles, and for many years I had to do the greater part of the ploughing. It was hard work for so small a boy. Nevertheless, as good ploughing was exacted from me as if I were a man, and very soon I had to become a good ploughman, or rather ploughboy. None could draw a straighter furrow. For the first few years, the work was particularly hard on account of the tree stumps that had to be dodged. Later, the stumps were all dug and chopped out to make way for the McCormick Reaper, and because I proved to be the best chopper and stump digger, I had nearly all of it to myself. It was dull, hard work leaning over on my knees all day, chopping out those tough oak and hickory stumps deep down below the crowns of the big roots. Some, though fortunately not many, were two feet or more in diameter. And as I was the eldest boy, the greatest part of all the other work of the farm quite naturally fell to me. I had to split rails for long lines of zigzag fences. The trees that were tall enough and straight enough to afford one or two logs ten feet long were used for rails. The others, too knotty or cross-grained, were disposed of in log and cordwood fences. Making rails was hard work and required no little skill. I used to cut and split a hundred a day from our short, knotty oak timber, swinging the axe and heavy mallet, often with sore hands, from early morning to night. Father was not successful as a rail splitter. After trying the work with me a day or two, he, in despair, left it all to me. I rather liked it, for I was proud of my skill, and tried to believe that I was as tough as the timber I mauled, though this and other heavy jobs stopped my growth, and earned me the title Runt of the Family. In those early days, long before the great labor-saving machines came to our help, almost everything connected with reet-raising abounded in trying work, cradling in the long, sweaty dog days, raking and binding, stacking, thrashing, and it often seemed to me that our fierce, over-industrious way of getting the grain from the ground was too closely connected with grave-digging. The staff of life, naturally beautiful, oft-times suggested the grave-digger's spade. Men and boys and in those days even women and girls, were cut down while cutting the wheat. The fat folk grew lean and the lean leaner, while the rosy cheeks brought from Scotland and other cool countries across the sea faded to yellow like the wheat. We were all made slaves through the vice of over-industry. The same was in great part true in making hay to keep the cattle and horses through the long winters. We were called in the morning at four o'clock and seldom got to bed before nine, making a broiling, seething day seventeen hours long, loaded with hard work, 
while I was only a small stunted boy. And a few years later my brothers David and Daniel and my older sisters had to endure about as much as I did. In the harvest dog days and dog nights and dog mornings, when we arose from our clammy beds, our cotton shirts clung to our backs as wet with sweat as the bathing suits of swimmers, and remained so all the long, sweltering days. In the mowing and cradling, the most exhausting of all the farm work, I made matters worse by foolish ambition to keep ahead of the hired men. Never a warning word was spoken of the dangers of overwork. On the contrary, even when sick, we were held to our tasks as long as we could stand. Once in a harvest time I had the mumps, and was unable to swallow any food except milk, but this was not allowed to make any difference, while I staggered with weakness and sometimes fell headlong among the sheaves. Only once was I allowed to leave the harvest field, when I was stricken down with pneumonia. I lay gasping for weeks, but the scotch are hard to kill, and I pulled through. No physician was called, for father was an enthusiast, and always said and believed that God and hard work were by far the best doctors. None of our neighbors were so excessively industrious as father, though nearly all of the Scotch, English, and Irish worked too hard, trying to make good homes and to lay up money enough for comfortable independence. Excepting small garden patches, few of them had owned land in the old country. Here their craving land hunger was satisfied, and they were naturally proud of their farms, and tried to keep them as neat and clean and well-tilled as gardens. To accomplish this without the means for hiring help was impossible. Flowers were planted about the neatly kept log or frame houses. Barnyards, granaries, etc. were kept in about as neat order as the homes, and the fences and corn rows were rigidly straight. But every uncut weed distressed them. So also did every ungathered ear of grain, and all that was lost by birds and gophers. And this over-carefulness bred endless work and worry. As for money, for many a year there was precious little of it in the country for anybody, Eggs sold at six cents a dozen in trade, and five-cent calico was exchanged at twenty-five cents a yard. Wheat brought fifty cents a bushel in trade. To get cash for it before the ported railway was built, it had to be hauled to Milwaukee, a hundred miles away. On the other hand, food was abundant. Eggs, chickens, pigs, cattle, wheat, corn, potatoes, garden vegetables of the best, and wonderful melons as luxuries. No other wild country I have ever known extended a kinder welcome to poor immigrants. On the arrival in the spring, a log house could be built, a few acres plowed, the virgin sod planted with corn, potatoes, etc., and enough raised to keep a family comfortably the very first year, and wild hay for cows and oxen grew in abundance on the numerous meadows. The American settlers were wisely content with smaller fields and less of everything, kept indoors during excessive hot or cold weather, rested when tired, went off fishing and hunting at the most favorable times and seasons of the day and year, gathered nuts and berries, and in general tranquility accepted all the good things the fertile wilderness offered. After eight years of this dreary work of clearing the Fountain Lake farm, fencing it and getting it in perfect order, building a frame house and the necessary outbuildings for the cattle and horses, after all this had been victoriously accomplished and we had made out to escape with life, Father bought a half-section of wild land about four or five miles to the eastward, and began all over again to clear and fence and break up other fields for a new farm, doubling all the stunting, heartbreaking, chopping, grubbing, stump-digging, rail-splitting, fence-building, barn-building, house-building, and so forth. By this time I had learned to run the breaking plow. 
Most of these plows were very large, turning furrows from eighteen inches to two feet wide, and were drawn by four or five yoke of oxen. They were used only for the first plowing, in breaking up the wild sod woven into a tough mass, chiefly by the cord-like roots of perennial grasses, reinforced by the taproots of oak and hickory bushes, called grubs, some of which were more than a century old and four or five inches in diameter. In the hardest plowing on the most difficult grounds, the grubs were said to be as thick as the hair on a dog's back. If in good trim, the plow cut through and turned over these grubs as if the centuries-old wood were soft like the flesh of carrots or turnips. But if not in good trim, the grubs promptly tossed the plow out of the ground. A stout Highland Scot, our neighbor, whose plow was in bad order and who did not know how to trim it, was vainly trying to keep it in the ground by main strength, while his son, who was driving and merrily whipping up the cattle, would cry encouragingly, All her in, fire! All her in! But who in the dell can I haul her in when she won't stop in? His perspiring father would reply, gasping for breath between each word. On the contrary, with the share and coulter sharp and nicely adjusted, the plow, instead of shying at every grub and jumping out, ran straight ahead without need of steering or holding, and gripped the ground so firmly that it could hardly be thrown out at the end of the furrow. Our breaker turned a furrow two feet wide, and on our best land, where the sod was toughest, held so firm a grip that at the end of the field my brother, who was driving the oxen, had to come to my assistance in throwing it over on its side to be drawn around the end of the landing, and it was all I could do to set it up again. But I learned to keep that plow in such trim that after I got started on a new furrow, I used to ride on the crossbar between the handles with my feet resting comfortably on the beam, without having to steady or steer it in any way on the whole length of the field, unless we had to go round a stump, for it sawed through the biggest grubs without flinching. The growth of these grubs was interesting to me. When an acorn or hickory nut had set up its first season sprout a few inches long, it was burned off in the autumn grass fires, but the root continued to hold on to life, formed a callus over the wound, and sent up one or more shoots the next spring. Next autumn, these new shoots were burned off, but the root and calloused head, about level with the surface of the ground, continued to grow and send up more shoots, and so on almost every year until very old probably far more than a century, while the tops, which would naturally have become tall, broad-headed trees, were only mere sprouts seldom more than two years old. Thus the ground was kept open like a prairie, with only five or six trees to the acre, which had escaped the fire by having the good fortune to grow on a bare spot at the door of a fox or badger den, or between straggling grass tufts wide apart on the porous, sandy soil. The uniformly rich soil of the Illinois and Wisconsin prairies produced so close and tall a growth of grasses for fires that no tree could live on it. Had there been no fires, these fine prairies, so marked a feature of the country, would have been covered with the heaviest forests. As soon as the oak openings in our neighborhood were settled, and the farmers had prevented running grass fires, the grubs grew up into trees and formed tall thickets so dense that it was difficult to walk through them, and every trace of the sunny openings vanished. We called our second farm Hickory Hill from its many fine hickory trees and the long, gentle slope leading up to it. Compared with Fountain Lake Farm, it lay high and dry. The land was better, but it had no living water, no spring or stream or meadow or lake. A well ninety feet deep had to be dug, all except the first ten feet or so in fine-grained sandstone. When the sandstone was struck, my father, on the advice of a man who had worked in mines, tried to blast the rock, 
but from lack of skill the blasting went on very slowly, and Father decided to have me do all the work with Mason's chisels, a long, hard job, with a good deal of danger in it. I had to sit, cramped in a space about three feet in diameter, and wearily chip, chip, with heavy hammer and chisels from early morning until dark, day after day, for weeks and months. In the morning, Father and David lowered me in a wooden bucket by a windlass, hauled up what chips were left from the night before, then went away to the farm work and left me until noon, when they hoisted me out for dinner. After dinner, I was promptly lowered again, the forenoon's accumulation of chips hoisted out of the way, and I was left until night. One morning, after the dreary bore was about eighty feet deep, my life was all but lost in deadly choke damp, carbonic acid gas that had settled at the bottom during the night. Instead of clearing away the chips as usual when I was lowered to the bottom, I swayed back and forth and began to sink under the poison. Father, alarmed that I did not make any noise, shouted, What's keeping you so still? To which he got no reply. Just as I was setting down against the side of the wall, I happened to catch a glimpse of the branch of a burr oak tree which leaned out over the mouth of the shaft. This suddenly awakened me, and to Father's excited shouting I feebly murmured, Take me out! But when he began to hoist, he found I was not in the bucket, and in wild alarm shouted, Get in! Get in the bucket and hold on! Hold on! Somehow I managed to get into the bucket, and that is all I remembered until I was dragged out, violently gasping for breath. One of our near neighbors, a stonemason and miner by the name of William Duncan, came to see me, and after hearing the particulars of the accident, he solemnly said, Well, Johnny, it's God's mercy that you're alive. Many a companion of mine have I seen dead with choked damp, but none that I ever saw or heard of was so near to death in it as you were, and escaped without help. Mr. Duncan taught father to throw water down the shaft to absorb the gas, and also to drop a bundle of brush or hay attached to a light rope, dropping it again and again to carry down pure air and stir up the poison. When, after a day or two, I had recovered from the shock, father lowered me again to my work, after taking the precaution to test the air with a candle and stir it up well with a brush and hay bundle. The weary hammer and chisel chipping went on as before, only more slowly, until ninety feet down when I at last struck a fine hardy gush of water. Constant dropping wears away stone, so does constant chipping, while at the same time wearing away the chipper. End of section 50. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Todd.